0: Welcome to another episode of Josie Talks, where we invite incredible artists and musicians to come and share their stories and experiences. Today, I am joined by Stephen Schick, a performer hailed as one of our supreme living virtuosos. Along with many other titles, Mr. Schick was the artistic director of the San Francisco Contemporary Music Players, a distinguished professor of music at the University of California, San Diego, and was the music director of the Ojai Music Festival in 2015. He is also a renowned author, publishing many articles, and a book called The Percussionist Art, Same Bed, Different Dreams. I'm so excited to have him here today to talk about his experiences as a performer, a teacher, and an author. Thank you so much for being here, Mr. Shik.
1: Thank you. Uh, First of all, call me Steve, and then secondly, it's a huge pleasure and a thrill for me to be here with you talking to you, Josie.
0: Thank you. So to get started from the beginning, how and when did you get started as a percussionist?
1: Well, I think like most people um, who start playing an instrument, it happens before you really know enough about music to make an intelligent decision, right? And so my mother really just made the decision for me. Um, she made this because when I was in the first grade at Wilson Elementary School in Mason City, Iowa, the band director sent home a list of instruments that the parents would then check to see which one of their they would like their children to play, and there were all these interesting instruments, violin, French horn, all of those things. And at the very bottom of the list um, was percussion. Actually, it didn't say percussion. It said the drums, but there was a note that said that the parents did not actually have to buy a drum. They only had to buy the sticks, and my mother was very persuaded by that. She was a very frugal farm wife, and she, that, that was the thing that made the decision uh, for me more than anything else.
0: Did you like it from the beginning?
1: I did, and you know, I'm sure that we talked about it. I, I don't really remember this. I would have wanted to be a percussionist anyway. I think for a couple of different reasons. One is that my uncle Phil, who was my father's youngest young, younger brother, he was quite a lot younger than my dad, and so he, he obviously old, He was older than I was, but he was more my age. You know, he was a in his teenager. What he was in his teenage years when I was. A, in grade school, and he played the drums. And I, you know, I adored him as the sort of cool uncle. And so I wanted to do that. And then, so I was, how old would I have been in the first grade? Um, something, well, I know that was, how, it was sort of was 1960 or 61, so it presaged the rock period. But then soon after that, you know, everything I wanted to listen to on the radio, every record I wanted to buy had a drummer in it. And so, this was really just meant to be, and, and, and my mother found her way into it through the frugality of it, but, I, uh, but I, I was always interested in the drums.
0: So then you just kept playing drums in, I guess, your school band as you continued?
1: Yeah, you know, I also played piano. My mother was an amateur pianist, uh, otherwise there are no real musicians in the family, and so I actually started piano before I started the drums. I started taking private lessons very young, I mean, probably too young. I remember, and in fact this is a, a memory which I am sure happened rather than just my rehearsing it over the years, looking through the yellow pages of the phone book until I found uh, a logo that looked like a piano and dialing that number uh, and getting somebody to answer on the other end because I wanted to play the piano. And and so uh, I didn't know what to say at that moment. That's as far as the conversation went. But I was, I was really interested in the piano at that time. Also, my mom played, etc. But at some point, the the drums and percussion kind of took over. I was became more interested in that. I had more opportunities in that area. And so that sort of emerged.
0: When transitioned from high school to college, did you have any other career paths in mind when you went into college?
1: Oh, yeah. No, I was never going to be a musician. Uh, so my my parents discouraged me. As I said, there weren't any other musicians in the family. And they they thought, this is a really hard life, you know, it's difficult, it's very competitive. You know, all the musicians they knew stayed up too late, had, you know, crazy lives. They didn't want that for their 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 young son. And, uh, and I also was really interested, I wanted to be a doctor, and I was really interested in the sciences and, and in other things besides music. I still am interested in a lot of things besides music. And so I actually went to college with the idea that I was going to go to medical school. And I went through part of a pre-med program, not very much, really, just a basically one year. I didn't do very well in that, mostly because I was practicing all the time and I was hanging out with musician friends that I played with in the wind ensemble. This was at Luther College, which was a, a small liberal arts school at, in, um, in Iowa, in Decorah, Iowa. And so the decision really to become a music musician was sort of made for me by the fact that I did not succeed as a scientist. <laughs> and um, and I began to realize at that same po- point that percussion was a great deal more than just playing a drum set in a band or playing, you know, timpani in a wind ensemble or an orchestra. And I suppose this was a product of the times where I decided to do the thing I really wanted to do rather than the thing that my parents wanted me to do. And so all of that kind of came together and I made a a switch between my freshman and sophomore years to study music. And so I began studying music and transferred to the University of Iowa, which had a really, still does, a wonderful program, um, and and began studying percussion there.
0: Was there something about pre-med and science that felt not fit for you? Like, How did you realize that, or did was it just gradual?
1: Well, that's a really good question. That's a really good question, and my dad... I hope this is not too much biographical detail, but my father was in the Korean War, and I, I, he didn't see me until I was six months old or something like that. And his studies, such as they were, were interrupted by the draft and by going to, to, the, uh, to the military. And he wanted to be a doctor, and it didn't work out for him. And so by the time he, when he left, the, he was in the Air Force, when he left the service, he had a child. He was married. He, you know, he decided to farm and, and, and to work. He worked for my my grandfather, his his father-in-law. Uh, that's how he began. And so there was a sort of sense that I was going to do something that had been denied him, that I was fulfilling this path. And I, I, I was really interested. I, I, it wasn't just being dutiful but a lot of it was because i thought that was a respectable choice more respectable than being a professional drummer crazy <laughs> and um and i wanted to make him happy and i i was interested in and so it it was a choice built on a little bit of a false um on a false premise and so i think eventually it is obviously it's too hard to succeed in any area of life if you're if you're not really sort of Ready to go and, and i wasn 't and, and I realized that and and um, but when I changed it was a, frankly, it was a little bit of a hard moment uh, telling my parents that I was no longer <laughs> going to study something that they understood and respected, but I was going to be not just a, a percussionist, a percussionist specializing in contemporary music, and that ushered in a, 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 not a short, cold period in the family, you know. They loved me, I knew that, but they didn't understand what I was doing. We couldn't speak about it, really. And I think they thought I was a little um, irresponsible. And um, it was a few years. In fact, I think for sure, they came to my Kennedy Center debut. I did a solo concert at the Kennedy Center. And I think at that point, uh, they knew that I was no longer going to be a burden to the family. They weren't worried that I was going to, you know, move back into the basement or anything like that.
0: Yeah, especially with pre-med, it's such like a high esteemed program. So the difference is kind of jarring, I guess.
1: Yeah, it really was. And, you know, and it was, I think beyond that, they, they, they loved me and they were afraid for me. And they didn't know whether I knew what I was doing and and I couldn't tell them I knew what I was doing cuz I didn't think I didn't know what I was doing either. And so I think this is a natural result. They trusted me. Obviously they didn't try to talk me out of it. They didn't sort of they certainly didn't forbid it, but they didn't understand it and they didn't know how to engage it.
0: Did you ever have doubts yourself about going into drum? Did you ever look back and think, "Well, oh, maybe I should go back into study medicine?" I still do.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I, no, I'm not being completely facetious. I, I, I think a better way of saying that is... So at the, it, in short answer to your question, yes, of course, because I also did not know where I was going. But just because you don't know where you're going does not mean that you can't start. You can start and figure it out along the way. And I had as a huge advantage an extraordinary passion for something Maybe that something was not farming, you know. Uh, but I had, a, I had sort of jetpacks on ready to kind of like try them out. So I had a lot of energy. I was very committed to the work. I knew what it took to succeed because I watched my dad in the fields. I knew that anything worth doing was really, really about hard work, etc. So I had those advantages that I didn't even really, really have. now. The interesting part of your question is that I also knew, because of having changed and because of seeing people, especially my immediate family, go through various cycles in their lives and switch professional directions and modify what they were doing, I always knew, and I know to this day, that there are many other things I could do in the world. There's, this, there's not playing percussion is not this sacred thing that surmounts every other activity I could ever do. Now I actually feel like there are a lot of things I could do, and I've chosen music, and it's extremely important, but it is not the only thing I'm capable of, and it frankly doesn't even really define my
0: life. That is actually quite interesting, because so many people that I know and so many people I talk to is like, I don't know anything else but music. But you have this full spectrum of what you grew up with and what you experienced with medical school to show that it's not just music in your life?
1: Well I, with all respect to the people and I know many of them myself, I think it's a little sad to say that there's nothing in life besides music because music only really metabolizes our inner lives if we can share it and we have to be able to share it with people who are not specialists and if you don't have some idea of what it feels like to be engaged and interested in things beyond your art, what basis is there for a relationship with your audience then? Um, and so, it, yes, you're right. I mean, it, it's true that I, I grew up in a, basically in a working family. I worked on a farm. Um, I wanted to study medicine. That didn't work out. But in the intervening years, I've also be, I'm very interested in languages, and I spend quite a lot of time studying language. I, I like that because it is a constant experience with doing something that you're not very good at, and that it practically is The the, the, the secret to success in learning a language is being okay with being embarrassed for a really long time, uh, and I think that's really healthy. I'm very committed to a certain kind of relationship to the natural world, which involves getting outside, and um, and physical exercise is extremely important in my life. So. If, Music is the thing that is central, and it defines me to some extent, but it is not not a limiting uh, quality. And, and, And when I make music with those people who say that they can only really think about music, then I find that I run out of things to say to them pretty quickly.
0: Do you think that your experiences and your knowledge of things outside of music influence the way you play and the way you interact with your audience?
1: Absolutely, 100%. Because if you look behind me, and I don't know how much you can see on this call, but there are all of these instruments. I mean, the instruments that I can see, just reflected in the in the shot that I'm looking at, are are coming from at least four or five different continents. And the, percussion is the art of multiplicity. In other words, we take instruments from from cultures and repurpose them. In different kinds of ways. We respect the original cultures, but the the notion of it is to live in a world in which you have contact with a lot of different kinds of things. And so to play percussion is really to be constantly aware of the multiplicity of cultures and of opportunities for expression. And so this already means that you cannot have that kind of hermetic practice which gradually gets smaller and smaller and focus is in on itself. Percussion is an, a lens that works in the other direction where if you start with a piece, you will eventually end up far from that point of departure. You eventually end up with your hands on instruments that come from Africa and from Asia and from Latin America and from the North America. You end up with your hands on musical ideas that that are combinations of cultural and social awareness and musical technique. And so it is an art form which fundamentally points us to the outside world. And so the life that I would lead on a given day that would involve studying Japanese at night, for example, which is my latest passion, hiking or exercising or sailing or the things that I do besides play percussion, That multiplicity of interests is reflected in the actual percussion playing itself. So it doesn't feel like I leave a room that is closed off from the world and go outside. What I try to do in the studio is to create a world which is already connected to the outside.
0: I always thought that percussion seemed to be the most universal type of music just because every culture that I know has some form of percussion in it.
1: Well, I think you're right about that, Josie. And I would say, I mean, people used to say, if you want to learn how to think, go to law school, which is is still not bad. It's not bad advice, frankly. But I think, but I believe that if you want to learn how to think, you should study percussion, because what it takes actually to play a given piece. Now, the one that's right behind me that you can see is a piece called Parsons' piece. It has three large cowbells. Those are Swiss three tam-tams that come from Asia. Uh, Symbols that come from the near Middle East, and three drums, which are, well, drums come from every culture. Those ones are probably more attuned to Latin America and Africa than anything else. So even to stand at that instrument, before you play a note, before you choose a, a mallet, before you begin memorizing, you have to come to terms with the fact that all of those cultures have one thing in common, and that is that you're touching them at that moment. And so I feel that for someone who is aware and thinking about contemporary life in um, in the early 21st century, where we do expect that we will be aware of, sensitive to, and interact with people who are other than we are and come from different places and have different backgrounds, where that is what it means, frankly, to be civilized, that, that is played out every single day, every single minute in the practice room here.
0: When you switched to music uh, in college, did you have any teachers or mentors that really shaped this very prominent point in your growth?
1: Yeah, I was very fortunate to have extraordinary teachers. I am a firm believer in the the system of public education in the state universities. I'm really really happy to be teaching at a state university now, the University of California. I have two degrees from from the University of Iowa and a third from the from a German conservatory, also a public institution. So I really really believe in them. I believe in the kind of marketplace of ideas that that uh, a state university offers in the in the set of contacts that you can make across boundaries of disciplines and things like that that a university offers. So I'm, 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 I, I believe in that. Of course, it's possible to get a great education at a conservatory or, or to go to a, a very famous private school. That's, that's all fine. But I never did, and, and I'm, I'm not interested in, in um, teaching at one. I'm interested in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the public education, the system of public education. So I am fortunate in that I had teachers who f- shared those ideas. Um, Thomas L. Davis, who is not a percussionist that many people know. He was a really fine jazz vibraphonist and made arrangements of pop songs for percussion instruments and things like that. You know, The kind of thing where people know what I do, they think, well, how could you have come from that teacher? He did this, and I, I've never forgotten it. I, I I will live my entire life trying to pay off the debt I have to... Mr. Davis and that was he gave me three semesters of really strong technical background where he taught me very very well all of the basic skills that I need and then he said to me in a moment of the greatest generosity I've had with a teacher or a mentor I don't understand Steve what you this music that you really want to do it is not anything I have any any background in but I'm always happy to listen and I thought what an extra, even at the time, I thought, what an extraordinary teacher that he didn't simply try to shape me into a version of himself, that he said, I've done everything I can. I will help you to the extent I can, but I'm not going to try to make you into an acolyte. And he set me up with instruments. We met weekly. I played Stockhausen for him, you know, these composers that he didn't really have an affinity for. But he was an extraordinary musician, had great ears, and a lot of insights into technique. He had the most beautiful snare drum role I've ever heard from anybody. And so I owe this to him. And ever since that day, I have never knowingly instructed anyone in my life. So my students, the, 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 purpose of studying with me is not to learn the music that I love in the way I love to do it. It is for me to do to them, for them, what Mr. Davis did for me, to give them everything I have and then to get out of the way.
0: And this goes in tandem with the next question I was going to ask you about your teaching. So you started teaching immediately after you completed your master's degree. Did you teach before that?
1: So I did my master's degree at the University of Iowa and then in a kind of stroke of luck, The university there and by this point i was whatever i would have been 23 or something like that pieced together several lectureships to give me a full-time position so i was at 23 years of age teaching at a big 10 university with a full-time job i thought i'd died and gone to heaven now now i know that the way they put that together that job did not have any longevity i'm glad that i eventually left it after a couple of years and I got a Fulbright um, scholarship, and I went to study for a year in Germany. Um, and then I then I spent a year uh, teaching Berlitz uh, English at the Berlitz School in Washington D.C. While my wife at that time, Wendy, uh, was um, studying deaf education at Gallaudet University. And it was after that that I got my first teaching job. I had taught part time at a college. Um, which I remember doing because I was only 19 at the time and I was teaching percussion lessons at a nearby college. And I could buy beer with my faculty ID, although I wasn't old enough to drink it legally. And so I would just keep saying to the bartenders, look, I forgot my license, but here's my faculty ID. You know, certainly certainly I have to be of legal age. Um, and they didn't buy that for very long. But in any event, uh, I started teaching then full-time at, at Fresno State um, after my my year, my my Fulbright year,
0: and was it difficult for you to get into the mode of teaching, or were you just channeling everything that you've learned from your previous teachers, and it came very easily to you?
1: Teaching is a method of inquiry. In other words, what you do when you teach, especially if you're teaching individuals, is that you engage with them in the process of asking questions and building a future that they are doing. So. That is not fundamentally different, I don't think, from learning a piece that you don't know how to play. So if you have an open attitude toward the art you're pursuing and you are interrogating it for how we can change you as a person, which is, I think, really what we do, or ideally what we do, then in point of fact, teaching is not very different from the collaborations of, change, of chamber music or learning a complex solo piece. You're just dealing with another person. And by the way, I, when I began conducting then later, it, it felt to me that conducting was another subset of teaching.
0: On top of teaching, mm-hmm. you have a very busy performance schedule. So how did you balance being able to teach and be present during your lessons while also playing your solo concerts and playing them from memory? <laughs>
1: Uh, Well, I used to have a (laughs) a busy performance calendar. Not so much anymore.
0: No one's got one anymore. No one has
1: one now. But that's also fine. We can talk about that in a second. Um, You know, the busiest times I had in terms of touring was when I started playing with Bang in a Can. I was the founding percussionist for the Bang in a Can All-Stars starting in 1992, which coincided with my getting the job that I currently have in San Diego. So I found myself with a new job at a high-powered university Very, very, you know, highly profiled and prestigious with all those kinds of expectations for a new faculty member. So that was already stressful. Then I joined this group from New York, and we were traveling all over the world. And so I just was, I I think I was on 25 red eyes from San Diego to New York in a given year. You know, we were just... I would just be back. I would teach all day. I would travel. I'd come back to teach. Uh, you know, people might stay in in Europe for a week between tour segments. I'd come back to teach. You know, and so there was just a lot of. I got to know the Denver airport very well, as I transferred, you know, from the East Coast flights back to San Diego. So it was difficult, but of course, what I think of as the goal of a performer is a kind of ongoing research in life that is played out in the arena of sound and music. And so, again, that is very much aligned with what it feels like to teach here. And and so I knew that what I was doing in my outside life, if I could metabolize it sufficiently for my students, would be of value to them. So I never actually really ever thought of my life as being separated into two competing strands where I had to decide which one I wanted to, I was always trying to merge them in that. And I mean, I still had to come back and forth to be present, of course. But the, the idea was that these were, uh, was a set of merged interests.
0: During your red eyes, did you ever have to like study your scores to keep them in your memory? Or were they just already so firmly inside of you?
1: Well, you you mentioned memory. And, and it is true that I play the solo music from memory. Um, and I always have. But um, I never studied the scores away from the instruments the score i always i do and to this day i do all of my thinking standing at instruments so i don't take a score home and then study it and try something out no that's what the practice room i think is is for and likewise i never write on my scores i never i never make notes i never put sometimes i wish i did because then i forget sometimes what i've what i've done the whole goal of learning a piece is to translate or to transfer the information of a score and the necessities of performance and map them onto the body so that the body and the mind become, in essence, the score. So when I review my pieces, I never do that by looking at a score. That object is external to me. It is it is a crutch at a certain point. The score resides in my mind and in my body. So I can review those by taking a meditative moment and, and thinking through those things. But but percussion is such a kinetic act and such kinetic art that to me, moving and thinking are inextricable from one another.
0: A percussion is almost like dancing sometimes.
1: So is piano playing, by the way. It's just right. that the the shape of the instrument means that it's a certain kind of dance. I mean, you have 88 keys, they're the same size, they're arrayed in a, in, a, in a regular way, and they take up a certain amount. And so there's a dance, but the way that the instruments, if you think of each of those as a separate instrument, for example, as I would here, then the choreography results from the uniformity of the, of the way they're laid out and the fact that every piano is, at least in terms of arrangement, fundamentally the same. Percussion is different because every, every piece is, is different. So, you know, I'll, in its in one piece I'll have instruments on a certain side and, and another piece on another side. It would be as though when you came to the piano and you played the Brahms Quintet, middle C was where it was supposed to be, and you played Pierrot Lunaire and it's over here, and you played um, Stravinsky Piano concerto, and it's down here. This is the job of a percussionist, is to learn a new physical arrangement of the instrument with every
0: piece. Interesting. I guess, if you think about it, all music playing is like dancing or choreography.
1: It is. It's just sometimes, if you're an English horn player or a violist or something like that, where the choreography of performance doesn't exist on a scale that makes it legible to an audience, it is still very beautiful and very wonderful, but it becomes less fused with the sonic output. Because these instruments are human-sized, the ones that I play, the motions I need to play them become a kind of accompaniment to myself. They frame the, the, the human presence in, in the landscape of the instrument and become part of the final product.
0: When you started doing solo percussion concerts, uh, which isn't so what some people might consider a standard concert program, how did you start to bring people to listen to your concerts and show them that it was something worth listening to?
1: you know i w- 'm of a generation and i 'm certainly not of the first generation of percussion soloists i 'm close to the very first generation the The, the piece that I re- alluded to earlier, you know Stockhaus and Siklus is uh, actually younger than I am, and that 's the first piece that we have for our instrument in the you know solo percussion music in the Western canon. Obviously, the instruments come from traditions that are thousands of years old, but in the in the western canon uh, they're um, it 's a fairly recent kind of thing, so being of that generation that or or just behind that generation that were pioneers, it never once occurred to me as a young performer that there was a career in this I, I, I really did not have a, a plan frankly um, it 's kind of frightening to think about now, and so I never thought anybody was going to be interested in what I was doing. I don't know why I was doing it. I don't know why I was as devoted, because it was not there was not a commensurate payoff. In other words, a lot of times performers say, I'm going to put in X number of hours learning this, and what I want back is a certain number of concerts and a kind of level of adoration that counterbalances the amount of work that I put in. Well, that just wasn't in the equation at all. Uh, now, when I speak to younger percussionists who've who up, now we're in a situation where there are percussionists who can make big-time careers as percussion players, playing you know in front of orchestras or in chamber music or things like that. I always find it sort of interesting to think, oh, right, they actually presumed from their from day one that they could make a career out of this and that there would be there would be an audience that would care. So what it felt like to me was not it didn't feel lonely or alone. It just felt like the the basis of communication was a different one. There were a lot of people that said, they were just curious about why anybody would do what I was doing. They were curious about the sounds. There is a spectacular, you know, in, you know like literally a sort of spectacle um, that comes from playing a, a, a large percussion piece, et cetera. There was interest in that. But there was no way to modify what I was doing to make it more or less likable. It just was what it was. There was... Mm-hmm. You know, there were five or six pieces of serious repertory when I began playing. It wasn't like I had a a pops program, world, you know, like, It just wasn't just didn't
0: exist. I'm curious when you did your first percussion concert, how many people were there?
1: Well, it was a it was a degree recital, so that one, you know, the, so my classmates came, and you know, there were I don't know there were hundred people or something like that, or whatever in you know, the usual senior recital. I suppose the first big concert that I did, well. I don't really know. I, there were some professional concerts, the Kennedy Center one that I mentioned earlier, or my Merkin Hall concert. But by that point, first of all, things had changed a little bit. It was already more established as an art form. I was no longer young. I had people who knew who I was. I'd won some competitions, et cetera, et cetera. And so then that felt like you know, there, were, there was an audience there.
0: I also think during that time, things were sort of changing with contemporary music and the sort of esteem people put it at.
1: Well, there was a time in the 80s, especially in this country, when contemporary music was basically synonymous with cod liver oil. You know, it's just like this horrible thing that you needed to take because it was good for you, but nobody wanted it. And so there would be these, these you know, abysmal concerts and nobody wanted to go to them, not even the people that were playing in them and things like that. But, But that changed, and actually percussion never really fell into that category because there is this kind of... Visceral and corporeal sense about that. I do joke, however, that that I'm slightly claustrophobic, and so it was my choice to become a contemporary percussionist because I was never ever around crowds. Uh, so that was, uh, you know, that was a helpful thing in my career choice. I, it's still not, at least in the music that I play, it's very unlikely to draw huge crowds. But if you, but you can't then set up the metric of success on the basis of how many people. Uh, come to hear you play. Those people who are interested will find you if you make it known what you're doing. Mm -hmm. That seems to be satisfactory to me.
0: So uh, you created this graduate percussion ensemble called Redfish Bluefish, and I was very, very interested to hear how you came up with the title and what led you to create this ensemble.
1: Yeah, so I wanted to create an ensemble when I first came to UC San Diego. Uh, my only negotiating position, you know, the only thing I wanted the university to assure me was that I would have six percussionists because the standard size of the percussion ensemble, that's, by the way, changed a little bit since 1991 when I arrived here, but at that point, the standard size of an ensemble was six because it was modeled on the percussionists of Strasbourg and they were a sextet. So that was what the repertoire was. So I taught my graduate class by making a group that we all played in at first, I just had five students, and I played the sixth part. And um, that's how we studied together, by playing repertoire together. And so I had as much at stake as they did, and that made for a really, really good teaching situation, I think. Um, then, then David Lang, who was a, um, a college classmate of mine, the Pulitzer Prize winner and the founder of, one of the founders of Bang on a Can called to say would did I have a, a percussion group that could come to New York to play at the Banganakan festival and I had been playing as a soloist for a while and I don't know if they asked us to, if we would play Steve Reich drumming or if that's what my suggestion was I cannot remember John Luther Adams was also there that's when I met John and that in that first trip for with with Redfish Bluefish and they wanted to know the name of the group well the name of the group officially in the university was Music 201C and and I mean I could have I mean there's something kind of nice about music 201 C as a name of a group but it didn't feel satisfactory and I just moved to um, San Diego and I began to ask myself so what are the literary associations with San Diego is there some is there an author or is there a text or something that we associated with San Diego and the first thought that came to my mind was because Raymond Chandler used to live actually very close to where I live now Uh, I thought of Chandler novels, but The Big Sleep really did not seem like a very good name for a percussion group. Uh, And then, of course, the most famous author ever to have come from San Diego was Dr. Seuss. And so I thought, oh, right, Uh, let's call it Redfish, Bluefish, which was a really, well, it wasn't smart because that would have meant that I planned it. It was lucky because at a certain point, the Dr. Seuss Foundation said, you can't use our name. But then, um, as it turns out, Redfish, Bluefish is not the title of the book. The, the title of the book is One Fish, Two Fish, and Redfish, Bluefish is just a, a line from the book. So we skirted that legal challenge and were able to keep the name. They were really unhappy. Uh, I thought, you haven't even heard the group. Maybe you'd like it. And so that became the kind of principal mode and of, um, of working, and that has now been 25 years.
0: That is so cool I was because I remember like when I heard, read your bio and I read the titles I swear that's a dr. Seuss book or it's in a dr. Seuss book and that's really cool that you kind of skirted the the copyright issues
1: yeah I mean they eventually were fine they they didn't know they were they I, I imagine they thought we were trying to make make money from Dr. Seuss had just died and everything like that and Eventually also they realized that this was just a university percussion group and nobody was profiting from it, certainly I wasn't.
0: After you became a teacher, after you became a percussionist, you started doing conducting. Um, how did you get into conducting?
1: Uh, well, at risk of having told this story too often, I will, I will tell you the, this is the actual story, which was that I was, um, I was doing crazy and experimental percussion music. I don't know how crazy, but I, I was touring with a French circus company as an actor in the circus, <laughs> participating with the acrobats and playing percussion at the same time. So it was a little crazy, you would have to say. And I remember there was an after party after the premiere of this circus that I was in, and there was a Mozart piano concerto, I can't remember which one, that was playing on a boombox, kind of in the corridor someplace, right? And I walked over. And I, I've always loved that. I've always loved, you know, classical orchestral music and, and you know, the standard orchestral repertory. And I had this most wistful feeling of like, oh, you know, that, that music, that's not a part of my life anymore. You know, I just, I, I miss it. But, you know, that's a long ways from being a circus actor. I'd grown a beard and I was playing amplified cardboard boxes and the kind of usual stuff, right? <laughs> and, um, but as it... So it happened, I, the, for almost the first thing I did that I, when I came back from San Diego after that premiere was that I was in a, in a, in a departmental meeting um, with, the, with the members of the board of the La Jolla Symphony. And, and I didn't come in because I had a relationship with the orchestra. I came in because I was on the executive committee of the department. And the conductor of the La Jolla Symphony had left kind of suddenly. They had a season that they had planned, but they had not budgeted for guest conductors. And one of the questions that they asked at that meeting was, do you know anybody who would be willing to conduct a concert for us for free? You know, Is there anybody that you can mention? And I, in one of those out-of-body experiences that sometimes happens, I saw myself you know, raise my hand and say, I'll conduct a concert. And the chair of the department turned to me and he said, um, but you don't know how to conduct. And I responded to him, how hard could it be and, um, and so I thought I was going to conduct exactly one concert in my life i'd done you know I, i'd never studied conducting i 'd never conducted an ensemble, but you know every once in a while I would conduct in a in a rehearsal, if we were learning it from chamber music, and so it wasn't i mean I knew that one went down That's that 's where I was on the, on that scale and so I thought i 'm going to conduct exactly one concert in my life, and what should that be? So I thought I'd play a piece of David Lang. I'd mentioned that he was a friend. I thought he would forgive me. Um, Wendy Sutter, who was the cellist of the Bang on a Can All Stars at that point, you know, having succeeded my advisor, the original cellist, she's a she's a good friend, and she came out to play the Crouching Tiger Concerto that Tan Dun made out of the um, film score. I knew Wendy would forgive me, and it had a lot of percussion, so I would have something to say about the percussionist. And then I thought, okay. Like, of all of that music that I used to love and listen used to listen to from the orchestral repertoire, what one piece, given that you're never going to conduct again, would you actually really want to do? And so I decided on the 1911 version of the Firebird, you know, the one with three harps and double winds and everything like that. I had, but I mean, zero business on the podium conducting the Firebird. And... Um, but I did, and the orchestra liked it. I liked them. Um, I put my hat in the ring on the basis of one concert having conducted with them, and I was chosen as their music director.
0: Did you have experience with the piece from a percussionist point of view?
1: No, I never played. I never played in an orchestra. I, I mean, I did in a student orchestra, but I never wanted to. I never was interested in playing in the orchestra. But I loved the piece, and so I didn't. I not I'd never seen. Aside again from my student orchestra experience, which I really liked, but um, I hadn't watched, I hadn't sat in on rehearsals. I didn't know what conductors said to ensembles. I didn't know what orchestras liked to hear or what they, you know. I just, I had, I was gifted with almost perfect naivete on my first, my first moment. And one of the funny things, I don't think I've told this story in a long time. I walked into the first rehearsal and I saw the podium and I thought. I can't get on a podium. I just object to it. I object to the whole hierarchy of this thing. So I had the stage manager move the podium out, and I stood on the ground with everybody else. And I conducted for about 20 seconds. It was a total shambles. And then somebody said, we can't see you. And I thought, okay, well, maybe I need the podium. So like, I was starting from, from zero experience and, and, and no contact whatsoever.
0: That must have been a breath of fresh air for the musicians that you were conducting
1: the other thing I'd say is that young conductors, and I always am very cautious when I hear people say that they study conducting. Uh, Of course it can be studied, but so often there is built in a kind of architecture of the maestro of the person who knows who's communicating, you know, Brahms is whispering in your ear, how fast to take the fourth symphony, et cetera. And that's nonsense. And I think of myself in many ways, especially now in the pandemic, As an uncertain musician, I do not know most things that I think people think you should know. I don't know what to do next, for example, here. I don't really always know what the right decision in a score that I'm conducting or a piece I'm learning, etc. And it feels to me in a certain way that what the pandemic is doing is reinforcing the idea that a healthy uncertainty in life. And by that I mean a scalability, a certain embedded modesty is honest. And and so I think I've always approached conducting that way, or at least I've, I've tried to, where I come and we work together. I have a score so I can say who's misunderstood something, and that is my job as a conductor, one of the jobs. But the idea that... Those musicians I'm facing are, are servants to a broader ideal that only I bring. Is has got a kind of narrative of control and mastery that I think is just unhealthy. Mm-hmm. It's sometimes hard to hold your ground against the expectations of maestroship. And I've not always been successful, but I, but I still think that that's the goal.
0: Not only are you a performer, a conductor, a teacher, you're also an, a writer. Your first book was called The Percussionist's Art, Same Bed, Different Dreams. What led you into saying, oh, I'm doing all these things already. I'm going to write, too.
1: <laughs> well, it's a good question, right? I thought, well, you know, we didn't have very much going on. Um, there is, was not, and still is not, a lot of writing by performers, intelligent writing by performers, about the actual act of performance. Often we have said to ourselves in this kind of, again, self-fulfilling prophecy that we don't have very much to say or what we have to say we'll say on stage. And what I always thought is that part of the act of performance is a project of inquiry, and then I realized that that led very, very quickly into the idea that that inquiry could be could be written down. There wasn't really... Um, a study of contemporary percussion, solo percussion music, so there was an opening for me. And the repertoire is not large, and so I've played a lot of those pieces quite a lot, and I know them very, very well. And so it just started down with the idea that I would share how, not so much what I think about the pieces, but how I approach them. But also, I've played siklus nearly a thousand times, you know, and the and the Zenaka solos, you know, nearly that amount. And so these are pieces that, that have accompanied me through the ups and downs of my life. You know, i mentioned my first wife. Uh, we did not stay we were together for 25 years, and um, we are still friends, but that was an interruption in what I thought my life was going to be. And so the way I've dealt with music was that, that those pieces were companions to me through that difficult time. They were companions as I met Brenda, with whom I'm married now. They have become part of how I view the world. And so rather than putting forth in a book a set of what one should or should not do as an interpreter, I thought it might be interesting to talk about how you can use the pieces of music you play as a tool for exploration, not simply as a means of execution.
0: Is that connected to the title, Same Bed, Different Dreams?
1: Yeah, you know, the Same Bed, Different Dreams is... In tr- a translation, at least as it's been relayed to me, because I don't speak Mandarin, but as a translation of, of the kanji for collaboration, so that you are together, but that you bring your own sets of ideas. So, and then I thought, you know, you, as I, I was married at, at that time, and I was thinking, oh, I sleep next to this person. you cannot be more intimate than being asleep next to someone, and as close as we are, we are likely dreaming very different things and i thought that that was an apt analogy for what it feels like to play this incredible set of multiplicities that is percussion
0: you mentioned earlier jokingly that you started writing your first book because you didn't have anything to do but now in the middle of a pandemic we really don't have anything to do so how have you been coping with quarantine and the lack of concerts have you been working on any other projects or maybe starting your second book
1: well, that's, thank you very much. That's a, that's a very nice question. Um, so I, am, I have begun my second book many, many times um, initially, and it still, may, it still may happen. I'm trying to figure that out, uh, uh, what, what should be done, and the world doesn't probably need to hear much more from me. But the, the initial idea and the basis of what may be the second book was a walk I took from San Diego to San Francisco in the summer of 2006, which was to propose to Brenda, I walked from my house to her house. I thought that was a reasonable sign of commitment to the relationship. And along the way, I heard the California landscape in a way I'd never had. So I, I thought that this could be an apt metaphor for the kind of permeability of outside and inside sounds. And so I'm still interested in that idea as the source for a book. Um, and I do a lot of writing that doesn't turn out to be books but turns out to be either keynote addresses or articles or something so I write very nearly every day in some capacity or another um, but what I'm doing during the pandemic is practicing and I realized well we talked a little bit about the early days of practicing for me in which there was nothing at stake and in other words there was not a I wasn't going to win a competition or play a concert or... I was just practicing for its own sake to explore these sounds. And at a certain point in March and April, I realized that that's what I was doing again. That I wasn't... I didn't have that meta view in my head of how far am I along on a piece? When is the concert? Am I behind? Am I ahead? How am I doing? It just was practicing for its own sake. So, which I frankly love, and I, I find the, re, the, the the ritual of practice and, and memorization reassuring, for me it's, it's wonderful. And so I am in my studio now, after not having been able to be at the university, but I've been back for a couple of months now, working on old things, spending an hour on three measures, which I could never have done before because I would have been behind in the rest of the piece. Now I don't know when I'll play next, and I'm not in a hurry, frankly. So I can practice in a way that is intense and purposeless, which is really what I'm, what I'm doing. It feels too precarious of a time to write a book that will represent where we are. It also feels impossible to write a book that doesn't mention the pandemic. And so I'm a little paralyzed with respect to how to put together a larger piece of writing now, but I am writing quite a bit um the uncertain art the idea of the uncertain artist of of having it be a paradigm for exploration is something I've written about and and am interested in, as well as continuing the sort of environmentally active listening that the walk uh, most best symbolizes
0: what's your writing process like? Are you the type that writes everything down in a really? Like rough, rough draft, and then refines it later, or Are you the type to do everything very thoroughly before moving on to the next part?
1: The best process for me is to write quickly and then to revise carefully mm. but 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 now, since much of the writing that I do is is on order, in other words it 's a program note or it 's an article or it 's an essay or a ch- a book chapter that 's going into an anthology or a keynote address, or you know, things like that. Those are driven by deadlines, and so that's not always possible to, to take that approach.
0: Right, but then when you're writing something like a book, that is a really nice approach to just let your thoughts out and then refine them after.
1: As you know, you know, you know what you think when you first say it after the time. So,
0: in closing, what advice would you give to young musicians at the crossroads of choosing their potential careers, especially now when the future is so uncertain? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, that's a, that's a fantastic question. It's, I think, far harder than I have the skills to be able to cope with right now, a far more complex question. There are a couple of things. I hope these don't sound like, like, like platitudes. For one, it's okay to think that there are advantages that will come from this moment. I'm always very cautious to take the blue sky approach or the silver lining conversation with respect to the pandemic because we really do have to remember how much pain has been caused. And when we start saying, well, look, it's not so bad, or look what I've been able to do, or isn't this wonderful, this is against the backdrop of, at the time of this conversation, more than 175,000 deaths. So I don't think we can easily say, convert this into a, a, a facile um, set of, oh, look what we've learned here. I think that that's, that's disrespectful, frankly. <clears throat> that having been said, I do feel that a lot of people are understanding that the weight of expectation that is on the shoulders of every young musician, here is what you have to do, here is how much competition there is, you must do this or you will be lost in it, you, got, you have to succeed at X, Y, and Z, all of that stuff is externally placed weight largely by generations that failed to do those things themselves. If we could release, if, 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 a, if a musician of your generation could release the weight of some of those expectations and realize that what music gives us is a platform for exploration, then that could be a positive benefit from the pandemic and it could be really a good set of advi- advice rather than simply continuing to accept that this is what success means. You can define the, your own metrics for, for success
0: with so much like suffering and as you said it's disrespectful sometimes to just say oh we'll look at the bright side here and there but i think to accept the the darkness of what's happening right now but also to see that there's hope coming out of it and there is some light near the end of the tunnel that this brings is healthy i think you're completely
1: right there is a there is a great deal to be hoped for because human beings are extraordinary are extraordinary creatures and music is the most direct representation of the life force of, of people that I know at least. And so, yes, naturally it provides us a great deal a great deal of hope. And I don't think of it I don't think of it this as exclusively a dark time. I only wish to say that the reason that I can say that it's not completely a dark time is because of the privilege that I have of having a job and a studio and my health and all of those kinds of things which so many people don't have. And so I feel like we've got, we've got to keep those voices in our ears or we'll risk becoming further locked away in our ivory, our, our ivory towers. The other thing I would say to you is th- that, especially if you're, if you're put positioning yourself as the younger musician to whom I'm speaking, I think it's a mistake to think that those of us who are older know what they're doing know what we're doing. In other words, your, your question implied that how can we get from a place where we're not quite doing the thing to a place where you clearly are doing the thing. Well, that, that presumes a lot about, about older people that, that, for example, we know what we're doing. And I, and I can tell you it's not true. It's really not true. And I think that as soon as you say that it is, then you've also given up the single sharpest tool you have for exploration. And that is uncertainty. That is, you know, a kind of healthy ignorance is really the fuel for forward momentum. And so I hope you never feel like you know what you're doing because, it first of all, will be false. And secondly, it will be unhelpful. I had this weird thing when I was, a, when I was an undergraduate student. So I was very beginning, you know, be serious about percussion. And I would alternate. There would almost be every couple of days, I would go through these huge swings of mood of thinking, oh, you know, you can really play. This is great. It's going well. And then, ah, you're a disgrace to your family name. How could you? Don't even show your face. And for a long time, I longed for the positive swing, and I dreaded the negative swing. And then I realized that the positive swing, in fact, wasn't positive, but it was a sort of self-satisfaction. I was satisfied with what I was doing. The negative thing was that my ears were improving. My expectations were going higher. And by virtue of that, my judgment was more negative. So I realized in a way that the actual truth was the reverse, that the moment in which I was the least happy was the moment in which I was making the greatest progress. And when I was really happy with myself, it was simply satisfying a relatively low expectation. Mm
0: -hmm. Or sometimes... in my, in my case, I guess it's trying to convince yourself that you're doing the right thing.
1: Yeah, I think that's all great. I mean, I think this is the reason we do it. And, and, and percussion was full of all these instruments that were never able to tell me, here's the right thing you should be doing. You know, you play it. It starts to tell you what it, how it wants to be used. And then all you have to do is really keep listening to it. Like, it's, like, it's, a, it's a love-based project, Right. And so like all projects based on love, there are a thousand ways of doing it right. And there are basically just one way to do it wrong. And the way to do it wrong is to be indifferent to the details and the beauty of the small things. And if if you don't do that, then you basically are assured of doing it right.
0: Well, thank you so, so much for coming. Your stories were so interesting and I learned a lot from your advice and about your perspectives on learning and teaching.
1: Wonderful. Well, listen, it's my pleasure, Josie. Thank you so much for inviting me.